All right, go to Acts chapter 2, and let's take our Bibles and stand in reverence to the reading of God's Word. By the way, Aaron, love that you sang that doxology song. Um, he, sang, he sang it at his wedding, and um, and I have to tell you, when I was there, I've, I've never heard anything but the first, and so um, it, I just haven't. I mean, I've never heard it before. Anybody do you know, add to it or have more than that. So um, I don't know if you guys are getting to stay with us during our meal. We have a meal after every week and all that kind of stuff. If if you are, I'm almost definite we're going to force you to do that again. All right. Amen, church. Amen. Amen. Okay. Acts chapter two. We read this last week, but we use this as a base text as we continue on talking about what it means to be a member of a church. Chapter two and verse thirty six. Therefore, all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Once again, this is Peter declaring the message at Pentecost. Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. As many as the Lord your God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly bore witness and kept exhorting them saying. Be saved from this crooked generation. So then those who had received his word were. What does it say church? Baptized. And on that day were added about 3,000 souls. Would you pray over this text with me? We are thankful for not just this text, but many texts that speak to us about this issue of baptism and what it means. There's been much controversy in the church through its history. There have been many differing beliefs, but we are thankful for this ordinance. We're thankful for what it symbolizes. We're thankful for how it marks a line in the sand and calls us out to go public. And if there's somebody here who is who truly has come to faith in Christ and has not followed you in believer's baptism, I pray that our message would help draw them to that. If, if there's, for all, all of us who have been baptized, may that public profession of faith in baptism that we've made, that we, is a part of our membership, may we live what that was. May we live as people who are walking in a newness of life. Let the gospel be that reality. Bless our time in your word. And God's people said, amen. So um, if you're here, we're talking about church membership. We're taking January just as a time to re-talk about it. I think it's good. Um, I'm going to share with you later in this kind of little little series about um, why it's so essential to be a member of a church. Right now, I'm just really sharing with you a lot of what our actual foundational documents have to say. I said this last week, and I'll say it again. It is God's will that you be a member of a church. doesn't have to be our church. can be a good, gospel-centered, Bible-believing church. It doesn't have to be a non-denominational church. It can be lots of different churches, but it's God's will that you do that. Now, in the Scriptures... There's a lot of different pathways and modes and methods of getting into membership at a church. You'll see this even in church history. There's many different ways people process people into membership. That's not really my focus. My focus is more the fact of 
What God would want is for you to identify with the church, to have accountability to the eldership of that church and to the people of that church. That there would be a church that you would support not only financially, but with your prayers, but would be an extension of how you exercise some of your spiritual giftings, would be an extension of, of fulfilling the Great Commission, would be an ex, and at the same time, and this is a radical idea. Are y'all ready for a radical idea? Can y'all say amen if you're ready for a radical idea? This is radical. This is something else about being a member of a church. I don't know if I can tell you about this. It's too radical. Okay, I'm going to tell you. I mean, I don't want to, but I'm afraid that you're going to run out of here and just be shocked about being a member of a church. Here's was one big essential of many essential about being a member of a church. It means that you actually come to it. Isn't that radical? so radical, isn't it? That you'd actually come to it. And not only that, but it would become an intentional focus of our lives. Now, to be honest with you, in the earlier years of ministry, when I first got in pastoral ministry, I had a little bit of uh, pride when it came to if people didn't come to church. If people didn't come to church, it was almost this thing of, I thought, well... I've almost made my value on how many butts and bucks I saw in the seats, right? Y'all, you understand this, right? I know y'all have never heard of this kind of thing. You're like, what? Pastors have thought of those kind of things? Yeah, you know, shocking. I remember it, it was almost if, if, if someone didn't make it to church, I, I mean, I was, I mean, I wanted something better for them, but there was also this prideful part that was, you know, I'm trying to build a body. I'm trying to, build bigger and better budgets, right? It's almost you stop seeing like the good for the people, but just what you could get from the people, right? In those days, um, I think we drove people in our church membership. I think sometimes we drove people in our, their attendance. If they didn't, if they weren't in attendance, it was almost like we guilted them. But I can tell you, the Lord has delivered me from, from that. If I, when I speak strongly on this matter, it's only because for the glory of God, and our good, God wants us to be at church with God's people, committed to that church, committed to that church in all the facets that the New Testament graces give us. We will be accountable like God would want that. That's why this is the family and the church are the longest institutions, right? Governments have risen and fallen, but not the church. I can tell you this so much. The church is so important. I'm going to give you another radical idea. That I wonder, I wonder what would happen if churches started to put a foot back in the ground and refuse to let the culture crowd a Sunday out. Here's one thing that I love, and I'm, this isn't my motivation for a student, but we have a family meal. If you're a guest with us today, we have a family meal at the end of every service, right? We'll eat, we'll have a time where we can edify, take the Lord's Supper, um, and and I'm so glad that we do it. Um, it's, like it's our own love feast that you see in the scriptures. Um, but I can tell you one of the benefits of it, that it has rescued me from the temptation, is I always got convicted on Sundays going out to eat. Honestly, I really did. Because, um, you know, you go out to eat and you tell your waiter or waitress, you know, and, and you know, then you tell, try to tell them about the gospel. And then you try to invite them to church. And then their next response was typically what? Well, I got to work on Sunday. And I was like, yeah, you should take off while I'm paying the bill, Right. The only reason they're working is because I'm buying, right? Do you ever notice people don't tend to work, jobs, places don't tend to be open if people aren't paying for that place to be open. And so it was always a convicting thing. Now, don't think you walk out of here and we have to be some kind of 
you know, legalists and that if Nick sees you going to Zaxby's, I'm going to come over and slash your tires. So don't do like that. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't hide your McDonald's bag if you see me on a Sunday night somewhere. <laughs> I, you, you should be convicted eating McDonald's just for the sake of the health of your soul. <laughs> Truly, if you're eating at McDonald's, we cannot scare you with heaven, right? <laughs> You'll catch it later. So I would say this. What happened if Christians started to see the gathering of God's people is so essential that not a soccer team or a softball team or a Sunday game or anything actually got in the way? What if we even got to the point where restaurants started to say, it's just really not worth even being open, right? That's why I love our family meals because it, it rescued the temptation, Right. Um, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I want, I love. I felt like that just about every Sunday, like that temptation, right? So I'm so glad. So I, I want to. I'm talking about membership because I think it's important, even the priority of actually being with God's people. Now, I don't think it's wrong for a person to be out of town, or sometimes you go on vacation, you're out of town, or, or, or you're sick, or that na- of that nature. But I, I want to say that that that. Part of being God's people is it, this is a priority, right? This is a priority. Now, I want to read for you a couple things about what our declaration membership is. I covered the first thing last week. I'll cover the second one this week. And you might be thinking, Nick, I thought you were going to do this in three weeks. Well, I'm going to figure out a way around that. But you just hang with me. So here's what membership is at Carville Bible Church. It's seven things. One a member of Carville Bible Church professes Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And we showed that to you in Scripture last week. Number two, there's been a public declaration of this confession by being baptized. Number three, you affirm the Carville Bible Church statement of faith as a declaration of truth as taught in the Scriptures, its core doctrine. Number four, you aspire to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord as taught in the Scriptures. Number five, uh, you appeal to the membership of Carrieville Bible Church to hold me accountable to the truth and manner of life taught in the Scriptures. Number six, you dedicate yourself to the earthly mission of making disciples to seek out the lost people, to help them receive Jesus as Savior, to assist them to be conformed to His likeness and encourage them to be effectively engaged in His service. And number seven, you pledge to protect the unity of the church and to support this fellowship financially, in prayer, and with my physical presence, right? There are seven things about what's unique about our membership. We're asking people um, at Carrieville Bible Church. That's, I'm doing this also kind of as a membership renewal, just refocusing. We did, it, we did it last January. I plan to do it each year. I think sometimes we forget what it means to be a member. Being a member of a church is not like being a member of a credit card company, right? It's not totally different. Membership means something. So today, we're going to look at number two. We looked at last week, confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior. And this week, we're going to look at, I have publicly declared this confession by being baptized, right? So a member of Carrieville Bible Church, the second thing is you've been baptized. You have followed the Lord in what we oftentimes will call believer's baptism. We're going to talk about baptism today. So if you're taking, if you're a person of outline notes and you're taking notes for an outline let me give you my first point is the different types of baptism there in church history. There are different types of baptism. Now, not all these types. I'm about to tell you the, the types that we're talking about regarding our second statement of our membership. But there are different types through church history. There are there is infant baptism. 
Now, that's not the kind of baptism I'm talking about today when I talk about baptism. But that is a type of baptism that has existed in church history, infant baptism. And more the Catholic church, infant baptism is really meant to be kind of as is really meant to be your salvation, the salvation of a baby. Um, There's also another type of infant baptism that is really almost a prophecy to their salvation in the future. Right. It's. It, you'll see this a lot in Presbyterian church, covenant reformed churches, where you'll see they'll baptize their ch- child as a sign that they're going to be a part of the covenant community of the church, raise this kid to love the Lord. And it's almost, I call it sometimes like a pointing forward to the person's, uh, that child's salvation someday. Right? So those are types of baptism that have existed in church history. There's also the baptism of repentance. You remember John the Baptist, right? You remember John the Baptist? He was baptizing you even find uh, that the that Jewish, the Judaism, uh, Jews, when they had a Gentile convert, would often baptize them. This is before Christ. So baptism has been around. It's not new. It's been around. There is the baptism of the Spirit. Now, that's not something that happens later on after your salvation. According to the Scriptures, that's something that happens at salvation. Did you know that when you became a follower of Jesus... When I became a follower of Jesus at age 16, I was baptized with the Holy Spirit at that point. Now, that doesn't mean for me there was no, you know, great light that you see right now shining down on me. I didn't speak in tongues. I didn't do anything crazy or anything where I was jumping and doing backflips or anything of that nature. Now, if you've experienced something more emotional when you became a follower, that's fine. That's a, that mean everybody's experience is different. Didn't experience that. But the scriptures say at that point, I was baptized by the Holy Spirit, which means I was became dead to sin and alive to God. Right. My old man was gone and there is a new man. Right. I'm a new person, a new creation in Christ. I've been baptized by the spirit. So that's those are some of the different types of baptism that we see in church history. And we also see in the scriptures. But what I'm talking about in number two statement of our membership is not infant baptism or the baptism of that John the Baptist had, or even the baptism of the Spirit. That actually happened last week at number one, when we talked about publicly confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior. The baptism I'm talking about today is what we call baptism by water and testimony to the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. That's the kind of baptism I'm talking about, right? And um, if if you've seen it, you've been here long enough out in the foyer, we have a baptistry. It's a fountain. It's a baptistry. It does lots of things. Um, I think actually those are the only two things it does. Right. Um, it can be a great kind of noisemaker when the when the fountain's actually on. So there is a third function of it. But That's where we baptize. And uh, notice it's a body of water. We baptize. We immerse completely in water. We'll talk more about that here in just a little bit now. So that's a. Just different types of baptism in church history that we see in Scripture. And what's really hard sometimes, and there's some disagreement. We may look into this today. I don't know if we will. But when you read Romans chapter 6 and verses 3 through 5, there's some disagreement about what kind of baptism it's talking about right there. You got guys like a John MacArthur that would say that's describing spirit baptism. Wayne Grudem says water baptism. Warren Wiersbe would say it's a combination of both. Um, So sometimes it's hard when you're reading Scripture, depending on the context. But there are some very clear texts that tell you what kind of baptism, whether this is spirit or whether this is water. Sometimes we call that a spirit baptism. We'll call a dry baptism, right? There is no water involved. It's what happens at salvation. 
Now, I will tell you this. If you come from a charismatic background, you're told sometimes that you get saved and that at some later point you get baptized by the Holy Spirit as a second blessing, um, as something that happens in a secondary manner. And I would say that's not what we believe as a church. We, In our doctrinal distinctives, we outline that kind of thing. We do not believe that you get the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit's baptism as some second thing, some second action later on after salvation. You get it at salvation. Here's why it's so essential. Do you know this? That when you come to Christ, when God saves you, you have God living inside of you. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. This is what's so unique about being a follower of Jesus. The most normal thing you'll do as a believer is follow Jesus. All right? I can remember at 16 when I came to faith in Jesus, I remember coming home and I wanted to study his word. I wanted to know him more. There was this desire. Perfection, no. Desire, yes. What was that? That was the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that you get at salvation. Now, our church, um, our church documents, our membership talks about being baptized. So, let me give you B, a second point, quick truce, just some quick truce about baptism. Baptism is not a part of your salvation. So let's just get that off, put my cards on the table. Baptism does not save you. Um, now, there, now, when you look through the totality of Scripture, you're not going to find that truth. Now, there are a couple of passages of Scripture that take some exegeting to understand that that's not talking about baptism being a part of your salvation. But baptism is not part of our salvation. Baptism is a testimony to your salvation. Baptism shows outwardly to the church and all what God has done inwardly. If you notice in the baptism waters, when you go in it, you go in it like Jesus went into the grave. You come out of it like Jesus came out of the grave. That's what happens in physical water baptism. You're actually showing everybody outwardly what God has done inwardly. When you become a believer, you die to sin and you become alive to Jesus on the inside. And baptism, water baptism, when you get in our sometimes cold baptistry, right? That's what you're showing to everybody outwardly. By the way, in a minute, I'm going to show you how maybe having a cold baptistry is more biblical than a warm baptistry. You'll see it. Well, I mean, well, I mean, just ask you a question. Was Jesus baptized in a heated pool of water? Right? Was John baptizing in a heated pool of water? I mean, don't worry about the electricity thing, right? Right? Let's just be biblical. How is the church to know who are saved and who are not saved? Well, you can look at the fruits, but also baptism is a great way for a church to know, is this person confident that they belong to Jesus? You know what I've noticed? And it's weird. It's almost intrinsic. I've noticed in the years I've been in ministry, someone who is not confident that the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus has saved them from their sin, they typically don't get baptized. Now, if they're a little child and they see, you know, like, their, you know, their sister or brother or, or friends get baptized and see everybody applaud. They might do it. But I'm talking about a person who is fully aware of the spiritual realities of life. Someone who is not confident that Jesus alone is their Lord and King, is their Savior. They typically don't follow in believers' baptism. So believers' baptism is also, I think, a wonderful testimony to the church of saying, uh, do you belong in Christ? Have you publicly declared that? Have you gone public? So one way is that you get to watch. And I would actually encourage you, if you're going to, when it's time to get baptized, don't do that privately. Do that with people. Do it in the community of faith. Do it with people that know and love you and serve, that you serve with. Let the church see it. Um, 
And by the way, I, I'll tell you this. It's not wrong to get baptized in places other than Carville Bible Church. Um, you know, I would say this. If you become a follower of Jesus and you want to be baptized, we see in the scriptures principles of people being baptized immediately. So I always, so my thing, my hope would be is if you lead someone to the Lord and, 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 and they get baptized immediately or you come to the Lord tonight at home and you decide to lay down in the in the waters of your bathtub right with family around take a video or picture or something so that we can rejoice together as a church body now let me give you just some systematic theology of baptism this is my third point uh, systematic theology here's what systematic means you're just kind of gathering a body of evidence theologically what it says and let me just talk to you some about baptism I'm going to mention some scriptures. There is no way, unless you won all the Bible sword drills growing up, that you can possibly keep up with what I'm about to read, right? But some of you may have quick fingers, right? But when you look through the scriptures, you find the idea of baptism. As I said earlier, Jews baptized Gentile converts to Judaism. You see John the Baptist baptizing, which, by the way, John the Baptist baptizing was not Christian baptizing. It was baptism pointing towards the fact that the Messiah would come. That's why you see later on in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 19, that disciples of John the Baptist actually received Christian baptism. We see that Jesus commands it. Look at Matthew. You will have time to look at this one. Go to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28. This is called the Great Commission. And I want you, I want you to notice here, we're talking about water baptism. Immersion. The word baptize, what's really interesting is you have Greek words that are just what we call transliterated. We just brought them over, right? So the Greek word for baptize are words like baptizo, which it sounds very similar to what we actually call it. And the word baptiz, baptize, baptizo means to immerse or to plunge, right? He says this in verse 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why do we baptize? Because Jesus commanded that we baptize. We baptize all who come to Jesus. We baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is an essential part of the disciple-making process. Verse 20, teaching them to keep all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so we see this played out in the scriptures. We see a systematic idea of baptism, of salvation and baptism. I'll read for you a couple of portions of scriptures. This is this is given. We get to the book of Acts and we see Acts starting to the church starting to spread the gospel message starting to spread the Holy Spirit moving. And we see people coming to faith and being baptized. For instance, if you were to read Acts chapter eight and verse 12 through 13, we already read Acts chapter two, right? We read Acts chapter two and saw that. They believed and were baptized and they were added to the church. Chapter 2, verse 41 of Acts. But also if you had enough time to turn to Acts 8, 12 through 13. The Samaritans and Philip were baptized after they came to Christ. It says in that text, but when they believed Philip, proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So we see both men and women, Samaritans, being baptized and even Simon, it says, himself believed and after being baptized. So we see the Samaritans and Simon being baptized by Philip. We see, we see in Acts chapter 8, verse 36 through 38, the Ethiopian eunuch being baptized after salvation. 
It says, when Philip opened his mouth, beginning from the scripture, he proclaimed the good news about Jesus to him. So Philip's telling this Ethiopian eunuch the good news of Jesus. And as they, by the way, when you look at the book of Acts, it's, it's the great commission happening before our eyes, right? The gospel is spreading from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, what we just read about, to the uttermost parts of the earth, right? You have the Samaritans saved, baptized. Then you have now the Ethiopian eunuch. We're now getting out of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. We're now getting to the uttermost parts of the earth, right? We're starting to spread this thing out. We're starting to do exactly what the Great Commission has said. Philip says this. It says in Acts chapter 8, 36 through 38, it says this. And as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Saul, if you go to Acts chapter 19 and verse 17 through 18, Saul, Paul, who was Saul before, the Lord meets him on the Damascus road. He becomes a follower. And here's what happens in Acts 9, 17 through 18. We see Paul getting baptized after becoming a follower of Jesus. So Ananias departed and entered the house, it says, and he laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord sent me, that is Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you are coming, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he rose up and was baptized. As the gospel is spreading out to the Gentiles, Peter baptizes them. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 44 through 48, It says in verse 44 of Acts 10, while Peter was still speaking these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who were listening to the word. And all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Remember, the the Great Commission is happening. It's going to the uttermost parts of the earth. Verse 46. And they were hearing them speaking in tongues, magnifying God. And Peter answered, Can anyone refuse water that these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit? Just as we did. So Peter says, what's stopping them from being baptized? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked them to remain a few days. So we see baptism happening after salvation. Believers baptism. I'm just trying to lay out a systematic theology what we see of it. We see in Acts chapter 16, Lydia in Philippi. We see Lydia in her household coming to salvation and being baptized. It says in Acts chapter 16, verse 13 through 15. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside. And there were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. Sitting down, we began to speak to the women who had assembled. So some women had assembled there at Philippi. And the woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. Whose heart the Lord opened to pay attention to the things spoken of Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized... She urges saying, if you've judged me faithful to the Lord, come stay at my house. But what you see is salvation, then baptism. You see baptism. You see someone is water baptized in response and testimony to their salvation. We see in Acts chapter 16, later in that chapter, the Philippian jailer, he comes to belief. So does his household and they are baptized. It it says, it says in verse 31 of Acts 16, he said, it says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? The Philippian jailer was about to take his life because when you're a jailer, you have one job as a jailer, which is to keep people where? Yeah, simple job. 
Well, it looked like he did a bad job of that, right? The Lord had, uh, had opened their chains, supposing them to be of gone. They stop him and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, Philippian jailer, you and your house. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all that were in the household. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and his household. Um, by the way, I don't have time to really go into it. Maybe I should or maybe I will. I have some notes here in the end. But a lot of times, um, oh, man, I was probably going to get this towards the history part. I'll come back to this. Uh, you know, a lot of people have questions at this point. You see an Acts that sometimes, like Lydia, and you see the Philippian jailer, that you have this idea of they get a person gets saved and their household gets saved and their household gets baptized, right? Some would say, well, that looks like that maybe they're baptizing infants. And we see in church history that those texts were sometimes used for that. The, the only thing for me is I'm looking at the text. It says, like for instance here, it says, um, it says, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all that were in his household. So if we're just talking about infants here, you don't speak to the infants the gospel message for them to come save. So in this household, it would seem like these were people able to actually hear this gospel message. But we'll, we'll, we'll maybe come back to that to a later point. But what we see is this. Those coming to faith believed and were baptized. We see this over and over in the book of Acts. We even see in Acts 19 that John the Baptist's disciples, who were baptized by John the Baptist, in Acts chapter 19, verse 3 through 5, they receive baptism, Christian baptism. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. I'll read this for you. I'll give you time to go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. I'm just giving you just kind of a brief theology of baptism. We see in, um, go to Ephesians 4. Don't, I'll rattle off some other scriptures here. You see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16, Paul, basically there's a big dispute going on. And Paul basically says, I'm thankful I didn't baptize you, that others did. Um, but, but you see this, they're baptizing, even in the Corinthian church. You can see that baptism is happening. It says in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, Paul says to the Ephesian church, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Be diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now notice verse 4. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith. What does it say? One baptism, right? One baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So we see that there is baptism in the scriptures. We see this. The, although there has been much disagreement in the history of the church. And that's my next point. We're going to take a brief church history look. There's been lots of disagreement on how to interpret this. Carverville Bible Church, where we are, our elders, and where we've been since our very beginning, we have established our belief to be baptism is a response to salvation where you follow the Lord based on the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. We, our normal method is immersion, but we will also do sprinkling and pouring when there's a providential circumstance, and I'm glad we do. I can tell you when I first started in ministry... Um, <laughs> I was in a fundamental independent Baptist church, and we were B, capital B Baptist, right? I mean, we were real Baptists, right? If you came to the church, but you were not baptized in a fundamental independent Baptist church, guess what we did? 
We rebaptize you because your baptism didn't count. In fact, we had one time there was this guy that came and um, he actually had cancer and he did not have very much longer to live. He was not a member of the church uh, initially. He, he had just come to faith. He had several medical ports and he wanted to be baptized. And so we talked about sprinkling or pouring because I don't know about you, but you understand when you've got medical ports, I think those are things you're not supposed to flood. But nonetheless, I remember us talking about it and it came to the, came to the conclusion that we can't be faithful to the Lord unless, unless we baptize this brother by immersion to dip, to plunge. That's what baptize is. So we wrapped him in saran wrap. And then we taped the top and taped the bottom and, you know, and then it was a mess. <laughs> I'm so glad at Carver Bible Church. I'm glad we immerse, but I'm glad when the circumstance is providential that we can pour. And, you know, in church history, that's actually not uncommon. In fact, when you study Baptist history, the early Baptists, the first Baptists in the 1600s, when they baptized, they actually poured, right? That's how they kind of did it. So nothing wrong with it, but the preferred method, if it's available, would be would be immersion. When I was in Nepal several years ago uh, on um, a mission trip, there was a baptism being done. And I can remember um, us going out into the courtyard to do a baptism. And I remember looking at their baptistry before, and the baptism had about that much water in it, right? And I thought to myself, I, I couldn't figure it out. I was thinking... Well, how are they going to baptize this guy? I guess they're just going to kind of like get a bucket and kind of scoop it up and just kind of pitch it. Or like, how are they actually going to do that? And you know what they did with that much water? They get the brother and the brother just lays down flat like you're on a bed, right? And every bit of water covered him. That was just enough. So they baptized him. So we see in the scriptures, there's the theology of baptism. We see it. If you are in Christ... If Jesus is your Lord and King, he wants you to follow him in believer's baptism. Not because it saves you, because it testifies outwardly what Jesus has done inwardly. We, it's a requirement of membership here, but I'd say it's a requirement of everybody who's in Christ. So baptism doesn't save you, but I will tell you this, all that are saved will be baptized. Let me say this again. Baptism doesn't save you, but all that are saved will be baptized. They will get baptized. Are you baptized? If you're not, is it because you're not confident that Jesus is your Lord and King? If that's the truth, why are you delaying a strong and firm answer to that question? Why are you messing around with that question, right? That's the first question you should get solved today, right? Don't deposit money. Don't take out money. Don't buy anything on Amazon. Don't play a game. Don't do anything else in life. If you're not confident enough to get into the baptism waters and follow him in believer's baptism, my biggest encouragement would be drop everything else in life and ask the question, why am I not confident in the death, burial, resurrection of Christ? Maybe you're not saved. And maybe that's why you're not getting baptized. Friend, answer that today. Get saved. Now, let's come to a history of baptism. How many of y'all like history? Right? Y'all like history? Okay. You're going to love this, right? I, I, I'm so excited that I read this in something called the Didache, right? It's, it's the exact writing of its time. We're not sure, but it seems somewhere in the first hundred years after the apostles, there was a Didache and it was, it records kind of how Christians, it was their, it was how they worshiped. It gives you a little insight. And when I read this, um, this, this document gives me a lot of confidence that we're doing it right, right? And, and here's why, because um, well, actually, let me read it, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. I love this. Here's a quote from the Didache 
in 7 um, from uh, chapter 7, it says this. Concerning baptism, baptism is false. Now, remember, this is like somewhere in the, you know, after the apostles, right? Somewhere in the first hundred years, you know, Christianity. Concerning baptism, baptize as follows. After you have reviewed all the things which those who are about to be baptized, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Man, we're still doing that, right? Even with these early Christians, we're still doing it. Then it says this. Do it in running water. Right? Now, um, when it says running water, it means like a river of cold water, right? Running water, river water. You know, most people were baptized in rivers. You ever notice that, right? Most baptisms happen in a river. But if you have no running water, then baptize in some other water. And if you're not able to baptize in cold water, then do it in warm water. Amen. You know, our baptism has been broke so many times. There's no telling. We probably could replace the carpet in the whole entire church by now if it wasn't for that baptistry. I mean, every time it's like a $3,000 pop. We're actually trying to get it fixed right now. But apparently, did you know that it's hard to find people to work on things nowadays? And for some reason, uh, you know, there's a lot of supplies that aren't making it to our country to fix things. So we still have a, a pretty broken baptistry. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll get it warm enough that you can actually withstand it. But hey, maybe we don't even need that anymore, right? Because the early Christians said, baptize in cold water. So Amen. Amen for being obedient, right? We'll baptize you in some cold water. So he says also in the Didache, if you don't have cold water, and actually what they're referring to is stream water, water from a stream. You ever been in a river, you know, like in the summer? You ever notice you can go to a lake and it's warm? Then you go over to a river and you're like, what happened? This is ice cold, right? That's what they're describing, but I'm justifying our cold baptistry for a reason. He says, if you have neither... Then pour water over the head three times. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And before the baptism, let the one baptizing and the one who is to be baptized fast. That's convicting, isn't it? As well as others who are able. It shows you how serious they treated baptism. And also, you must instruct the one who is to be baptized to fast for one or two days beforehand. Obviously, they were doing something to kind of bring a seriousness to this baptism. That's early church history, the earliest of the earliest evidence we have of what actually happened with baptism. Now, as church history goes on, we find that there's, um, you know, that they would do actual several things they would do, especially as Christianity was no longer illegal. When you start to get past the 300s and Christianity is no longer illegal in the Roman Empire, you find that baptism actually isn't as immediate. They actually start taking a longer time before they'll do a baptism because so many people were starting to come into the church. They were afraid of baptizing false converts. So it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be uncommon that there would be kind of a couple of times a year you get baptized and in between there would be a lot of catechism. There'd be a lot of catechizing. There'd be a lot of teaching and instructing, making sure that before you got in the baptistry waters that you completely had an understanding of what it was to follow the one true God. Even you read this, um, you read this in history that when you would go into the water, not only would they baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, but in the early church, especially as they were um, especially as they we, we get past we get into Christianity being a legal religion in the Roman Empire, that one of the things it says that they would do is when a person would get in the baptistry water, they'd also have them face the West and renounce Satan by saying things such as, I renounce you, Satan, 
and all your works and all your pomp and all your worship. Then they'd face the East and profess belief in the Trinity and Christ's atoning work, which is what we do. And additionally, church leaders would lay their hands on these people, asking uh, that there be no evilness in them. Even some Christians believe that this was a form of exorcism. So you find as church history continues on, though, that there became a practice where adults started to stand in as kind of proxies, um, as representative for infants, and started to do baptism in kind of a representative form. You can find this in the book, uh, in Greg Allison's Historical Theology, which, by the way, another plug, this book's out there in your bookstore, right? I'm sorry, I'm supposed to call it Resource Center, right? One of the most important developments, here, let me read for you a quote. One of the most important developments in the early church's view of baptism was that with from baptizing people who could, con- who, who, who could consciously participate in the rite of baptizing infants. At the end of the second century, Tertullian objected to involving children in baptism. The practice for sponsors to stand in the place of infants being baptized. During the ceremony, these sponsors would make promises both to raise the children in the Christian faith and to ensure that the children would live wholeheartedly for the Lord. Tertullian objected to such promising could not and should not take place. Baptism should be administered later in the child's lives when they were believers. But this practice began to happen and slowly but surely... As we get in past the 5th century, it now becomes something that's adopted officially in the Catholic Church. And it never turns back. As the doctrine of the original sin starts to make its way, the Catholic Church makes baptism, even infant baptism, a rite. When we get to the Middle Ages, it stays that way. When we get to all the Reformers, guys like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, they still are doing infant baptism. Although they're not doing infant baptism for salvation, they're doing infant baptism is that kind of where it's, this means that the parents and that this child is going to be brought up in the covenant community and they're going to love the Lord. And the parents are, it's, it's almost, I, I sometimes I look liken it to like a parent dedication almost in some way. But they continued on with it. Now it's really interesting when you get, and by the way, I'm just, going high level past this. Um, So the reformers, some of the big reformers didn't do away with it, although there was some struggle with it. There was a guy by the name of Zwingli. And if you've come to um, Austin's class that we've been doing here, you've probably heard about, have you covered Zwingli yet? You covered Zwingli, didn't you? Just a little bit, right? Well, this would be a great part to cover, right? You got to love the reformers. Um, So Zwingli believed so much in it that they actually made a city ordinance that there were people not getting their children baptized. There was this group called Anabaptists, right? Anabaptists, right? And they started to rebel against this idea of infant baptism. They didn't see it in scriptures. They saw that it was a perversion too close to the Catholic Church. So these Anabaptists would not baptize, right? And so what happened is in that city of Zurich, where Zwingli was, Zwingli taught that you would have infant baptism, not for salvation, but it was Basically a replacement as Israel baptized as Israel would do circumcision to their 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 men their young boys on the eighth day that circumcision was replaced with baptism. Therefore, you must baptize your child just like the Jews baptized on the eighth day, just like the Jews circumcised their sons on the eighth day. They he believed that that baptism had replaced circumcision and that you must baptize your kids early in life as a testimony to the one day they'll come to Christ and be raised in the covenant community. Believing it so much that they passed a law that all those parents 
who had not in Zurich had not actually baptized their kids had one week to do it or else there would be a penalty. There was a group of Anabaptists, a guy by the name of Felix Manns, who hosted hosted what is believed to be the beginning of the Anabaptists by some historians, where he they met at his house and they baptized. They did believers' baptism. Three days later, Felix Manns, with because of this this ordinance of Zurich, was actually drowned in the river and killed. Kind of a mock baptism for for going against this. I'll tell you, there's a lot of stuff that goes on. It was a, I mean, we may treat it like cavalier, but it was a big thing in Christian history. As you kind of get into Christian history, you find groups like Baptists. And of course, most of us, a lot of us have Baptist history. Baptists, you know, they started to promote this idea of believers baptism. I don't think it was a new idea in church history. It was there from the very beginning. It was there in scripture. We see it with the early church. Now, depending on your historical interpretations it some historians see that it's always was, was there there were small churches and small segments of christians practicing believers baptism the whole time but what we find is today for the most part you'll find churches like your product your 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 methodist your um presbyterians your catholic they'll do infant types of infant baptism but you'll find mostly your non-denominational your baptists we don't typically do Infant, we don't do infant baptism. We, we actually baptize after you've come to Christ. So that's just a little bit about the history of baptism, right? Don't you, don't you love now that you have history, right? So just know that, um, you know, in the past, you know, if, if you didn't baptize your infants, you could be in big trouble in some places. Now, here's a couple questions people ask about baptism. When should a person get baptized? When should a person get baptized? Here's my answer. Immediately. That's what I see in Scripture. It's something you do immediately, right? Don't delay, you do it. So the question that, that some people then ask, um, what, you know, is, you know, some churches believe and some Christians believe that baptism is a part of salvation. Is it? And I would say no, it's not a part of salvation. Even when you look back at Acts chapter 2, there is a lot of controversy over... Look at Acts chapter 2. There's a lot of controversy over how the translators have have done chapter 2 verse 38. Where chapter 2 verse 38 says, And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you should be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sin. Some will take that and go, That means that baptism is a part of salvation. That's a question some people have. Is baptism a part of salvation? I would say, No, it's not. Just because you see it right here, which there are some that would make the point that this word for should say a good translation could also be because each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus because of the forgiveness of sins. We translate the Bible with the Bible. So the whole totality of the Bible actually says this idea that you come to faith and then baptism is after. But baptism is not a saving work. If it was, why would you look in verse 41, stay in the, t- in the text. So then those who had received the word were baptized. Their salvation in verse 41 wasn't a part of their baptism. These are two separate things. They stand on two different merits. So the question would be that some would ask, when, Nick, when can I get baptized? Soon. In fact, we'll do it next week. In fact, when we do it next week, we'll find a way to knock the chill off the water. It'll still be a little cold, but just remember, you're doing it biblical if it's cold, right? It's how the early Christians did it. You could have some theological snobbery. Now, 
Some reasons people say, well, what are some reasons people don't get baptized? Well, I'll tell you, here's some reasons. I've told you earlier, they're not sure about their salvation. Some don't follow the Lord and believers baptism because they're embarrassed. They're fearful. They're fearful to tell people the gospel story, their, their testimony. And I would tell you that that's not from God. God doesn't give us a spirit of fear. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 1, 7, we've not been given a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. Some people won't follow the Lord and believers baptism because they were baptized as infants. They believe it would be a smack in the face to their, their, their maybe Catholic upbringing or to their, or if they had a Presbyterian upbringing, they believe it's a slap in the face. But I can tell you, if you're convinced by the word of God in scriptures to follow him, that your baptism comes on the other side of your salvation, you are not dishonoring your parents by following the Lord and believers baptism. In fact, you're actually honoring them. Because when your parents had you baptized as an infant, their ultimate goal and hope was that you would honor and love and serve God. And the fact that you're deciding based on his word to follow him today in that, that doesn't mean you're dishonoring your parents. So that's some reasons that people don't follow the Lord in believers baptism ultimately. Now, some other questions people ask. They'll ask, what if I made a profession of faith and I, ca- and I got baptized and I later in life realized that I did not have a true profession of faith? What should I do then? Is that, you understand that question? We, you may not know this. I'll tell you about me becoming a follower all the time. But here's one thing that sometimes people don't know. Um, so when I first started going to church, 15 years old, and I asked Jesus as Savior, right? And, but I didn't understand what that really meant. I got baptized the next week. And then later on, I became a follower. I read the book of Romans, became a follower. It was about a year later at 16. And then, you know what I did? The next week after that, got baptized. And actually, I would consider that the first time, I didn't really even get baptized. I pretty much just took a bath in front of my church, right? I just took a, you know, a really sanctified bath, I guess you could say. So I'd encourage you, if you've come to true saving faith, don't count the baptism of the past. Count the baptism that now comes on the right side of your salvation and testimony to what God has done. Now, sometimes people ask, can you, know, can you be baptized in another way besides being immersed? Yes, you can. But I would say the way we even see with early Christians is sometimes you can't by providential reasons. And if you can't by providential reasons, by all means, pour a sprinkle. But when we see... The word, when we see the word baptized and we see the examples, if it's available, you go for something that's immersion or plunge. Now, here's something that some people ask is, who can be baptized? Like, who can do the baptizing, right? You know, I was raised in my fundamental Baptist training that only the preacher can baptize. But at our church, we see Matthew 8, 28, the Great Commission, as everybody's responsibility. So at our church, who can do the baptizing? Anybody who's saved and is baptized, right? So moms can, can baptize their children. Friends can baptize each other. Anybody. If you, if, you come, if you want to be baptized, who's the best person to baptize you? Is the person who has either led you to the Lord or has been discipling you or is responsible for that? That's the person. Now, I'll end with this. Um, this is something I ha- that, that happens because we're in a non-denominational church. Did y'all know this is a non-denominational church, right? Just so you know. But it is a Bible church. Not part of the domination, but it's actually out front, right? I love that name, Bible Church, right? I love it, right? Um, or maybe we could call it Carville Sola Scriptura Church, right? Or something it's stronger, maybe, right? Um, but I'll say this. In churches like ours, we do at times have a 
a wider net. We'll have people come from a Baptist background, Pentecostal background, Catholic background, some covenant reform background. And you'll find that sometimes you'll have people come, and this has happened to one of my pastor friends. Here's how he handled it. Um, I don't know how I would handle this, but this is, this is what happens. You'll have some people who will come to a church, and they're from like a covenant reform that, that baptize infants, not for salvation, but as a part of the covenant community, they believe, they believe in their theology that, that circumcision got, that, that baptism replaced circumcision and that they're very convicted. They've just had a baby, right? They're very convicted that they need to have their baby baptized, right? But they're in a church that doesn't believe in any kind of infant baptism. And I had a pastor that was like this and he, he had a, some people in his church and it, it was very, it was very hard. And, and I asked him, what'd you do? And he said, he had a conversation with these parents and said, you know, um, can you, can you understand that that baptism you're wanting to do is really a baby dedication? You're, it's really you dedicating yourself to the Lord? And the parents said yes. And here's what he did. He found a Presbyterian church with a little sprinkling baptistry. And he baptized their baby, not to be a part of the covenant body, not for infant baptism. He did it as a parent dedication, right? And and I'm saying that's what you see some of the the... the the pain of it and stuff, right? Where I've seen even pastors who are pastoring non-denominational churches and they get, they get this kind of put in their kind of lap. Now I'll end with this. What I love about baptism is that you've gone public. Christianity is not a private religion. This is why membership is not a private thing. That's why when we do membership, we want to bring you up in front of the church and declare. I also want to encourage you if you're a member of our church and God is going to move you to another congregation, would you let us pray over you? You came in publicly. Could we actually pray for you publicly and actually send you off on your way in a great way, right? Wouldn't you just love to be able to do that kind of thing? But here's what baptism does. You're going public to everybody. I'm not ashamed of Christ. He is mine. I marked a line in the sand. And my encouragement to you today is this. If you've not become a follower, if you've not followed him believer's baptism, Let's get that settled by next Sunday, right? And if you don't want to wait till next Sunday and you don't want to be a godly Christian and have baptism in cold water, have it in your warm bathtub tonight. Call over friends and family and those that know Jesus and follow him in believer's baptism in your two foot of water. But whatever it is, follow him and follow him now. The time to follow Jesus is right now. Amen? Would you pray with me? I want to pray over this as we'll sing back to the Lord. And I'm so excited after we sing to the Lord, we're going to dismiss you. Aaron, you can make your way up here. And, and then after we sing to the Lord, we're going to take a meal together and fellowship and edify and build each other up. This is the best part of my week when we do this. Would you pray with me over this message? Stand to your feet. I'm asking for obedience to the Great Commission this morning. Father, there's those here who've delayed this act of obedience, but they know you. They love you. They are confident in the work of the cross. Remove the excuses and let your glory be what they pursue. Lord, if there's other, if there's other questions that have been unanswered, may they speak up. Before we even consider this, maybe there's some who have not come to faith in Jesus. They've not bowed the knee, repented of their sin, and trusting in the finished work of the cross.
Today, would you save them? Today, would you show them their cosmic rebellion against the God of heaven and that you have satisfied the wages of our sin by your own death and blood? Thank you for that. Let us sing joyfully. Let's sing in response and a thankful heart for those of us that have Jesus as Lord and King. May you bring people into these baptism waters. I'm asked that everybody in our church this year, wouldn't it be awesome if everybody in the body could actually baptize somebody? What a prayer. What a prayer you'd honor. God, would you do it? And God's people said, let's sing together before we dismiss to family meal.